normally it wouldn't be that much big of a difference because you guys can all hear my voice, but uh, this is more for the online viewers. And every now and then, oh, not every now and then, every week we have a number of people that actually follow us on the on the live stream and then the uh, recordings afterwards. So, um, <laughs> we want to make sure and have the uh, have good audio. As I was saying, it's uh, it's been an interesting week because um, yeah, today is the uh, today's the big day. It's kind of the um, uh, it's kind of like a important moment in a pastor's career or a pastor's profession. Uh, Galen probably says it best when uh, he uses the example of the mob. And he says, if you're in the mob, being ordained is the equivalent of being made. Like once you're in, you're in. And uh, there, there's a lot of accuracy to that to that metaphor, even though it's, uh, I don't know if it's a, a good, good, uh, healthy connection between ministry and the mob, but uh, nevertheless, it is, it is a big moment. And um, yeah, so if, if you guys are able to come in the afternoon, definitely, we'd, we'd love to see you there. And um, um, yeah, it's been kind of a reflective week because prior to this week, I actually hadn't thought about ordination um, in probably more than a year. Um, as an intern, ordination was always on my mind, like, oh no, like, Am I ever going to be ordained? And it'd be great if I could be ordained. And I deserve to be ordained. And then uh, years passed by, and then I just stopped thinking about it. And now that it's today, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, like I don't, there are so many other people that deserve ordination more than I do. And uh, so it's kind of a, it, it is a bit of a, um, uh, maybe a surreal moment. But uh, anyway, it's definitely made me think over the past week about uh, the importance of this, uh, of this moment. So we're very thankful for your um, support for both Jinha and I in this church. We've been so blessed in knowing you and having you as a part of our church family. And uh, part of this moment is really celebrating together with you. So thank you, for, uh, thank you so much for, for your support. So uh, Jinha and I are going to be starting a new series um, covering the parables of Jesus. And it's a three-part series that's going to cover... Um, just different parables. We just thought it's kind of good to get into the Gospels. It's good to change it up a little bit and get our minds thinking in terms of studying a different part of Scripture. And so we're going to be reading through three different parables, covering three different teachings that Jesus covers throughout the Gospels. And uh, today we're going to be covering a message entitled, Pure Does Not Equal Spiritual. Pure does not equal spiritual. And we're going to be talking about the parable of the ten virgins. I don't know what your driving habits are like, but I've got this really bad habit of riding the fuel tank out. And for me, it's kind of like, I'm at a quarter tank. I could fill up, but I'm just kind of in a rush, so I'll just fill up later. Besides, if the fuel light turns on, there's definitely going to be a petrol station that pops up somewhere along the road. And uh, Sharon, can, Sharon can testify firsthand that I do tend to ride out the, the, the gas light every now and then. And uh, I remember we were on our way um, to a church retreat. And she was like, uh, is your fuel light on? Are we going to be okay? I'm like, we're going to be fine, Sharon. We're going to make it. <laughs> Jinha's dad is also the same where as soon as, as soon as the fuel tank hits quarter tank, actually he probably fills up at about a half tank. So he's, he's very proactive about not running out of fuel. 
So my record is driving 37 kilometers while the fuel light is on. Uh, Jinha and I were driving from the Grampians back home, and uh, the fuel light came on, and there wasn't a petrol station in sight. And uh, Jinha and I were kind of like, we were just praying. <laughs> and anyway, we, we made it, and even though we were worried about running out of fuel, I did think to myself, that's okay, I'm an RICV member, so it'll be all right. I don't know if that's a healthy way of thinking. But I recently, I recently read an article that actually says it's really bad for your car to actually um, run your car on empty, and so I stopped doing that. So Sharon, if we ride together, you'll be okay, because <laughs> I'm a lot more proactive about filling the fuel up. So today we're going to be looking at a parable of Jesus that looks at the importance of storing extra fuel. Parables happen to be one of Jesus' favorite teaching styles. He often made up stories that were relatable to people, uh, people's lives, and they were relatable to culture. Um, and what he would do is he would tell these allegories to teach spiritual lessons. He wanted people to understand the principles of the kingdom of heaven, and he did this by using allegory. So before we go into the story, I want to look at some historical context so that we understand the story of the parable of the ten virgins. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. And let me just grab this here. And while you're turning there, I'll give you some context to this story. So Jesus knows that he has one last moment with his followers. One more moment before he's arrested, tried, and crucified. He thinks to himself, what should I share with my disciples before I'm taken away from them? How can I prepare them for when they're left alone? So from Matthew 24 to 25, Jesus goes through a series of teachings and parables that have to do with events that will happen before his second coming. These teachings are referred to as the Olivet Discourse because he is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. In Christian theology, we call the study of the end times eschatology. It's a bit of a mouthful, but eschatology is simply the study of the end times. So what I want to do is Direct your attention to Matthew chapter 25 and looking at verse 13. Matthew chapter 25, looking at verse 13. And notice how the parable ends. Jesus says, So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. Jesus wants his closest followers to be ready for his return. He doesn't say when he'll return. Hidden in this story are lessons that teach us what it means to be spiritually ready for the return of Christ. I invite you to glance at verse 1, and I'm just going to narrate the story as you read through it. In the story, there are 10 virgins that respond to a wedding invitation. Following typical, uh, typical Jewish marriage customs, a bridegroom left his parents' home with a group of friends and they went to the home of his bride where nuptial ceremonies were carried out. After this, the entire wedding party would form a processional to the wedding banquet. And normally this was held at the home of the bride and the groom. And the wedding feast would be held at night. So in this story, the wedding party delays their arrival. And those who are waiting for the wedding feast 
fall asleep. At midnight, the wedding party finally arrives and a call is made out. The bridegroom is here. And back in those days, the groom is called the bridegroom, which is very confusing for us because the bride is the woman, the groom is the man, but in this context, the man is the bridegroom. So the midnight cry goes out, and those who have been waiting to follow the wedding party wake up and join the procession to go and celebrate. All ten virgins had lamps to provide light, and in the story, there are five of those ten virgins that prepared extra oil to fuel their lamps through the journey in the dark. And Jesus calls these the wise virgins. But there are five virgins of the ten that didn't prepare extra oil, and Jesus calls them foolish. They ask the five wise virgins to share the extra oil, but the wise virgins refuse. If you look at verse 9, the Bible says, But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. The foolish virgins are able to source some oil, but by the time that they get the oil, it's too late and they miss the wedding party. When they arrive at the bridegroom's house, the bridegroom says, I'm sorry, I don't know you. And the foolish virgins miss out on the wedding festivities. So let's look at the meaning of this story. Oftentimes in scripture, there's a lot of symbolism that is taken from this parable. For example, the bridegroom in the Bible represents Jesus. And for those of you who are interested in looking up these references later on, the references are there on the screen. Virgins represent pure people, pure nations, or the followers or representatives of God. And those references are found in Jeremiah 31, 3, and 4, and Revelation 14, 1 to 5. So as we give identity to the different characters of the story, the story almost makes less sense. And here's why. The selfish virgins are called wise. Now, if I think about this, a good Christian should be someone who's willing to share. And so if someone says, hey, I've ran out of oil, can I have some of yours? The Christian thing to do is to say, sure, have some of my oil, here you go, and we'll just make it together. But what happens is, it's the faithful, wise virgins that say, no, go get your own. And so that kind of leaves me a bit puzzled, scratching my head, thinking, why does Jesus kind of praise the wise virgins as opposed to condemning them for not sharing? It happens to be midnight. What store is going to be open at midnight? So not only are these virgins selfish, they're also inconsiderate. It's kind of like, go find your own. So they don't want to share, but why can't they share their light? It's like, you light is not a personal thing. I don't know if you've ever gone camping as like a young person and you go with your friends and inevitably someone forgets a torch. And so it's always that one person that has the torch and everybody just follows that person, right? And so I figured it'd be very similar here. But the reality is not only are the wise virgins not willing to share their oil, they're not willing to share their light either. Then there's the bridegroom. If Jesus is the bridegroom, why is he so mean? I mean, they're in front of his house. Yeah, sure, they're a little bit late, but they're there. And Jesus says, sorry, I don't know you. And they're kind of left to their own. Then if, you explore, or excuse me, then if you consider the fact that the foolish virgins 
go and look for oil rather than just simply following the wedding party. I kind of wonder if that's the reason why they're foolish. It's kind of like, okay, so you didn't have oil. Just follow where everyone else is going and then you'll be fine. You'll make it to the party on time. But instead, they go look for their oil. So what I want to do is explore what the oil and the lamp represents. And I think that'll make this story understandable. Throughout the Bible, the concept of oil, lamp, and light are commonly referenced. Here are a couple verses. Psalm 119, 105. It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, God's word has the ability to shed light to guide our lives. There are many roads that we can travel, but God's word is here to provide direction. It reveals potential hazards on the pathway. The light is not the destination. It just provides guidance so we can get to our destination. Here's a New Testament reference. This is a bit lengthy, but let me read through the passage with you. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And there's that light reference. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. In this passage, Scripture says that we are to shine. And the question is, how does one shine? Paul writes in Philippians, wrestle with salvation. Spend time considering what does it mean to be saved? Work it out and experience God in you. Become familiar with God's presence in your life and do that which is good. Hold fast the word of God and you will shine. And when Jesus returns, there will be great rejoicing. See, in the Christian journey, there are moments when this happens. When God saves us, it gives us the sense of his presence. That peace and security leads and guides us. It compels us to do that which is good. It compels us to obedience. And so there are moments where we respond to the will of God. And by taking that step of faith out, we encounter what God has in store for us. I remember when Jinha and I first were given an opportunity to plant a church in the city. The obstacles seemed insurmountable. There were five of us that were meeting together talking about, you know, one day it'd be great to start a church. And at that point in time, there was just... A small group of us and we would meet each Friday night just to run small groups and uh, each month we would have these meetings and prayer sessions and we would kind of talk through what would it mean to start a church in the city what would it mean to start a church in the city and we worked through the finances we worked through the personnel we worked through our own personal resources and we kind of thought yeah we're not sure how this is gonna happen so the biggest thing is if we want to start a church service then we've got to have a place to worship right 
And so Saturday mornings, we're kind of thought, we thought we'd probably need about three hours each afternoon, probably about five hours realistically. I wonder how much rent will cost. And so we're calling around looking for different venues, and we're looking at a minimum of $500 per week just to run church service. And so you look at how many weekends there are in a month. Sometimes there are four. Sometimes there are five. So minimum, we're looking at $2,000 a month, right? So there's five of us young professionals, and we're like $2,000 a month minimum, maybe $2,500, but you go 500 times 52, and then it comes out to a pretty significant budget. And it's like, all right, who's going to put their hands up? Who's going to fund church service? And the reality is we just weren't at a place where we're able to do that. And so Jinha and I start praying, and uh, we put together a little business plan, and we're like, okay, if we start a business, maybe it can become revenue generating, and then, uh, and then we can start church service after that. So let's just start small, make some money, and then do ministry. Well, I happen to know this guy named Derek, and I knew him from way back when, and I knew he was a business-minded person. And so I said, hey, Derek, can I just catch up with you for lunch? I just want to throw this business plan by you, and I just want to get your perspective. So we sit down for lunch, and uh, he had the document already, and uh, I could see that he brought it to lunch. And we're just catching up, chit-chatting. He goes, hey, Roy, so I noticed in your business plan you're wanting to start church service in the city. And I go, yeah, we're wanting to start church, uh, church service in the city. And he goes, hey, I've got office space. Do you want to check it out? And I thought, yeah, okay. And, you know, I've, I've kind of visited different buildings around the city, and I thought, there is no office space that could accommodate a church that's going to be reasonably priced, but he offered, so I should just, I should say yes, it's rude if I don't. And so we walk into 500 Collins Street, he brings me into the lift, we go up to the 10th floor, the doors open, and we walk out. And initially I thought there were different companies on this floor, and then I quickly realized his was the only company. And so he first brought me to the boardroom, and he said, oh, look, there's a boardroom in here. You could probably sit like 20 people in here if you really tried. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not too bad. And then we walked through these double doors, and I saw the room. I thought, man, you could fit like 40 or 50, 60 people in here easily. And he kind of looked around. He's like, is this suitable for a church for you? And I was like, yeah. And, of course, the biggest question on my mind now is how much, right? Because I already know minimum $500. And so I asked him, hey, so how much to rent this space? And he looks at me and he says, Roy, don't worry about rental. Just run your church service. You do mission and don't worry about rent. We never had to sign a, memorand a memorandum of understanding. No contracts, no paperwork. We just, we've been here. And you fast forward uh, about four years now. And every single Saturday, we run church service here without rent. There are times where we break chairs and my kids draw on the walls. And I'm pretty sure if you look over there, there's some mark, marker markings under the, uh, under the whiteboard. That's not from their business. <laughs> and so every now and then I've got to write an email. Hey, Derek, I'm really sorry. We broke another chair. Hey, Derek, I'm really sorry. There's some blemishes on the wall. Like, just let us know how much it costs to take care of it. And I never hear a response from He never responds. And I'm kind of like... So no news is good news. And every now and then I see him in the office face and I'm like, hey, Derek, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry that we're kind of wrecking your place of business. He goes, don't worry about it. And, and he kind of told me, look, I had been praying, God, you've given me a place um, to do business. And I just want to know how can I use this for you? How can I use this for your glory? And for him, us coming to him and using this space as a church is an answer to prayer for him. And I remember him 
uh, talking to me saying, Roy, if you're wanting to do mission, you never have to worry about money because there are always people like me who are wanting to sort, uh, support people like you to do your work. You know, I remember Jinha had prayed before, God, uh, please give us a venue in the city and let it be for free. Amen. And I opened my eyes and I was like, why would you even pray that? Like, <laughs> what? Like, God's not going to answer that. And lo and behold, this happens. And as we walk out of 500 Collins Street, we sit on Collins Street in Church Lane. I don't know if you've ever seen the laneway over here. Uh, I'm pointing at the wrong side of the building. Oh, it is that one. Oh, I pointed at the right lane. This laneway right here, is church, it's called Church Lane. And I remember sending an email to Derek saying, hey, did you know your building sits on Collins Street in Church Lane? He goes, wow. Like, I've, I've never known that. He's been in this place for years, right? And so for, me, for Jinha and I and for um, the people who started this church plant, it was one of the greatest experiences to see how God had provided. And for us, we didn't have the answers. We didn't have the solutions to the challenges that we had to running, uh, running a church in the city. But the point is, we made ourselves available, and then God provided the rest. We responded to the will of God, and then God gave us that experience of um, what this is talking about in terms of um, producing oil. And it's those moments where we wrestle with God and respond to him and experience him that we get to store those moments where we can always look back and say, look how God has led us in the past. That gives us hope for the future. I can tell you it was in that moment I felt like I was on fire. And what I mean by that is I could see that God was there. That fuel gives me um, peace. It keeps me on this pathway, on this journey that God wants me to take. And there are so many times where I felt lost and unsure of where I was headed, but I'm always able to tap into that store of oil because I've had that experience. I've stored that memory. I've seen God work, and it motivates me to find more oil. In this parable, the wise virgins didn't share their oil because the spiritual reality is that you cannot give your experience to somebody else. Sure, you can tell that person what God has done in you and for you, but you cannot live out your faith for someone else. They need their own experience. They need their own oil. The wise virgins tell the foolish virgins, go buy your own. See, there's a cost associated to the purchase of oil. When you have an encounter of faith, it requires personal sacrifice, which leads to the ownership of your own encounter with God. See, sometimes people try oil transplants. We try to put our oil in other people's lamps, or we use other people's oil in our lamps. But sometimes there are compatibility issues. See, God works in so many different ways through so many different people, and it's important to store your own oil. So why couldn't the foolish virgins just follow the wedding party to the feast? They don't have oil? No problem. Just follow the crowd. The spiritual reality is that the lamp and oil allow the owner to see the bridegroom. Let me say that one more time. The oil in the lamp allows the owner to see the bridegroom. 
Spiritual encounters give the of oil the ability to see God's working. Without oil, without light, there is no following, even if there's a crowd of people moving in a specific direction. I've had conversations with people where they, where they ask me, so why do you believe in God? And so I come up with a compelling reason why I believe in God. And I, you know, one example that I've given in the past, well, there was a time where I was financially struggling. I tithed and God provided help. So you gave money and God gave you money and now you believe? And I think to myself, well, you word it that way and it sounds a little bit silly, but yeah, sort of. And then the next follow-up question is, well, is there any other reason why you believe? And every testimony I share is not relatable to the inquirer because my experience is not their experience. And hence, they do not see what I see. I don't know if you've ever watched through those uh, debates between um, um, Richard Dawkins and any other theologian. I think the most famous one would probably be uh, John Lennox and Richard Dawkins. And they're kind of duking out the philosophical nature of whether or not God is real. And it's really interesting because John Lennox then switches to testimony mode and he says, look, regardless of all the phil uh, philosophy, I've experienced God in my heart. And Richard Dawkins turns to him and he says, okay, well, I can't argue with the testimony now, can I? And what Richard Dawkins is saying is, while I don't believe your testimony, I can't argue the fact that it happened to you. And this is really, really important because our testimony builds our faith, but it won't always compel someone else to believe because they might not see it from our perspective. So it's not that the foolish virgins weren't allowed to follow the wedding party. It's that they couldn't see the wedding party. They could see the crowd, but they weren't sure if they're heading in the right direction. There's a message of personal responsibility that's associated to the lessons in the lamp. There are several commonalities between the five wise and the five foolish virgins. For one, they're all virgins. They're all pure. They're all churchgoers. They are all planning on going to the wedding feast. They all grew weary of waiting for the bridegroom. They all fell asleep and were not ready for the wedding feast. There's only one difference between the five wise and the five foolish virgins. Five had extra oil. When the wedding party arrived, the extra oil that was stored gave the ability to the five wise to know how to handle the darkness. It gave the wise the ability to discern where the bridegroom was leading them. See, God is not concerned so much with whether or not we're able to know when Jesus is coming. He's more concerned with how we are going to live our lives in the moments of difficulty leading to the return of Christ. So Jesus ends the parable by saying, Keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. The command to keep watch is repeated in the following chapter of Matthew. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start in verse 36. Matthew chapter 26 is now the, uh, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, or the trial of Jesus. 
Jesus goes to a place called Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he asks them in verse 38, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. When he asks the disciples to watch with me, he's asking the disciples to pray to support him as he yields his life to the will of God. He was asking them, give me encouragement. Realize the sacrifice I'm about to make. Appreciate it. Understand it. So that when I'm going to the cross, I can know this is worth it. I kind of wonder, what would it have been like for Jesus to realize there is nobody on planet Earth that understands what I'm doing right now? No wonder why he was pleading with his disciples, watch with me. If you look at verse 40, it says that he comes to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. These two verses give us a flashback to the parable of the ten virgins. Here are Jesus' followers sleeping when they should be watching. So in verse 40, Jesus realizes that they've been sleeping, and he transitions from watch with me to just watch for yourself. Watch for yourself so you don't enter into temptation. Jesus is hoping that the disciples will learn to connect with God to give them clarity on what his will is. He doesn't want them to fall into temptation. He wants them to learn to prioritize God in difficulty because they're about to be drawn away from him in a moment of temptation. See, watching means that we would seek God and prioritize him. There's something interesting about sleeping. Sleeping is not sinful. There's nothing wrong with fulfilling a human need. There's nothing wrong with resting. There's nothing wrong with recharging the batteries. We need to do that. But the problem was that at a time when the disciples should have been seeking clarity on God's will, they prioritized their comfort. Watching and praying is a mindset to place God over ourselves to keep God's will and mission fresh in our minds and to store those moments when we encounter him. Peter doesn't watch. And as a result, when the challenge of Christ, Christ's trial occurs, we see Peter denying Jesus three times. Instead of understanding the mission of Christ, Peter ends up fleeing the scene of the crucifixion out of shame. But I'm so glad that the story of Peter doesn't end there. Peter's story is encouraging to us because even though there are many moments where Peter fails to store oil, he ends up being one of the brightest lights in the New Testament. I had an Old Testament professor uh, at Andrews who set up the most odd grading system um, for his Old Testament class. And for me, uh, my first two years of uni, I studied my brains out. I'm like, man, I'm just going to live in the library and spend hours in the books, and I ended up doing that. And then I realized as time went by, 70% of getting a good grade is just figuring out the professor. And uh, this professor was one of the most unique characters. And um, just to give you an example, um, he set up his grading system to teach us how spiritual maturity works. 
And so he would give us quizzes every single week. Those quizzes had 20 questions, and you would think that if there are 20 questions, they're worth 20 points. But here's how he set up his grading system. If you get between 1 to 10 questions right, you get 1 point. If you get anything above 10 questions right, you get 2 points. And if you get 100% right, you get 3 points. And it was the weirdest thing because I would think, all right, I got 18 or 19 right, but really I only got 2 points. So what's the motivation of learning all the material if I'm just shooting for an 11 every single week? And here's what he was Those points represented percentage points. Those points represented percentage points. So every single time we took a quiz, there was a potential of gaining 3% of the 100% that we're trying to reach, or 94% uh, to get a 4.0 or a high distinction. So what he was trying to get us to do was, rather than worrying about getting questions wrong and lowering our grade point average, he wanted us to focus on getting questions right. And so what ended up happening is, as you tally all the percentage points, there was like 150% like available throughout the, whole, throughout the whole semester. And you could bomb and fail exams, and it would be okay. Uh, we had a major assignment that um, had to do with writing a, a, a paper on theology, and we could choose anything in the Old Testament. And he was looking for creativity. And what I did was I spent my time trying to understand one bit of Old Testament theology. I wrote a paper on it, and he gave me a zero. So like we, I spent a lot of time, and he said, there's no creativity in this paper. I didn't learn anything new. You just regurgitated what you learned from the textbook and the commentaries. Zero. And I was shattered. I was like, I'm going to fail. And as I'm tallying up my points at the end of the semester, I was like, I have 96%. Like, I don't even need to take the final exam. And so there was a group of people, not me, that walked into the final exam wrote their names on their exam, and walked out of the class because they knew I already have over 100%. And so his assignments, his papers were ridiculous. I mean, it was like our quizzes were recite the dynasty of the Persian Empire from Artaxerxes I to Darius Hystaspes. And it's like, there's like 1,000 Artaxerxes. Who's going to memorize the chronology? Who's going to memorize the dynasty of all the kings? And so my point was, he was trying to get us to not so much focus on, oh, no, I got it wrong. He was trying to get us to focus on, look what you can do right. And here in this parable of the ten virgins, God is trying to communicate and inspire us to store oil, to learn how to store oil. There may be lots of times where we get things wrong, but there's so many times where we can get things right and experience and encounter God. And it's in the moments of difficulty, trial, and darkness that we can retap into those stores, light that flame, and know where to walk. As you consider this parable, may, God's, may God guide you. May you experience those moments of producing oil, and may you shine brightly in a world that needs that light. God bless you.